so carrying on then with the fiqh lessons. It's been a while of course since we had the last session before Ramadan. But if you remember then we are going to begin on the chapter regarding ghusl. The rulings on ghusl, how ghusl is to be made, when it is to be made, when it is required. The ghusl, al-Sheikh al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah ta'ala says, بضم الغين اسم مصدر من اغتسل يقال اغتسل غسلاً والمصدر أن يقال اغتسل اغتسالاً وأما الغسل بالكسر فالمراد به مادة التنظيف التي تستعمل مع الماء so when we talk about ghusl with a dhamma, ghusl, that is what we are talking about. They may say in English, the ritual bathing. Perhaps they may mention it like that sometimes, the ritual bathing, meaning the full body bathing that you have to do as a ruling under certain circumstances. And sometimes it is wajib, sometimes it is mustahab, depending on the particular ruling for the particular situation. As for ghisl, with a kasra, the ghisl is the item that you use to make the ghusl, meaning some soap or, or, or the water that is used then, those types of items that you use to clean yourself with, they are the ghisl. But the act of what we're talking about is the ghusl. The rulings in the religion are about the ghusl. As for the ghisl, that is the soap and other items that you may use when washing oneself. The chapter here in specific, or this section in specific, it is going to discuss firstly the ghusl that needs to be done from janabah. So what is janabah? When is a person considered to be junub? Junub is a person who has the state of janabah upon him. And janabah, it is something that occurs to a male and to a female. They can both be in the state of janabah, the junub. So you can say, rajulun junub and imra'atun junub. 
They are both within that state of Janabah. And it's mentioned in the Quran, the Janabah is mentioned in the Quran in some of the ayat. The first hadith that we'll have a look at then regarding the state of Janabah, which is sometimes in English known as the sexual impurity. The sexual impurity. There is a hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الماء من الماء الماء من الماء that the water is because of the water or the water is from the water You'll see what the hadith means in a moment. That is the basic wording of the hadith. Al-ma'u min al-ma'. The water occurs as a consequence of another water. So what are these two waters that are being spoken of? The first water, al-ma'u min al-ma'. The water occurs due to the water. The first water in the hadith is talking about the ritual bathing, the ghusl. The ghusl, that is the meaning of the first water. That this occurs from the other water. The other water is in reference to the seminal fluid. The second water is in reference to the seminal fluid. This hadith is therefore saying that ghusl is only a requirement if or as a consequence of seminal fluid exiting. That if seminal fluid exits from a person, then the ghusl is due. That's the meaning of the hadith. The water is due as a consequence of the water. Meaning the water of ghusl is due upon you if the water of the seminal liquid exits. Meaning otherwise... If seminal fluid does not exit, then the water of ghusl is not required. That's what the hadith indicates. That the ghusl is only required if the seminal fluid exits. This water of ghusl is only needed if the liquid and water of the seminal fluid exits. That's what the hadith is saying in the basic sense of it. قَالُوا وَهَذَا مِنَ الْجِنَاسِ التَّامِ وَهُوَ اتِّفَاقِ اللَّفْضَيْنِ فِي الْحُرُوفِ مَعَ اخْتِلَافِ الْمَعْنَى And that's a linguistic point, that's not a problem. الماء من الماء 
اي انما يجب الاغتسال من خروج المني بلذه اما اذا جامع في النوم ولم يخرج منه شيء فلا اغتسال عليه هذا مفهوم الحديث so the fact that the narration is telling us and and bear this in mind carefully because some explanation afterwards is built upon this opening part the opening part is telling us the water from ghusl water is only needed meaning you only have to do a ghusl if the seminal fluid exits and we should say with desire if the seminal fluid exits with desire meaning otherwise as an example if a person engaged in intercourse in a dream for example but no seminal fluid exited from that individual then no ghusl would be upon him but there are two important things to note here the first is that if the seminal fluid exits from you with desire then the ghusl is wajib upon you that's what the hadith indicates if the seminal fluid exits from you with desire then the ghusl is obligatory upon you والحديث له قصة مفادها أن عتبان بن مالك رضي الله عنه جامع زوجته ولم يخرج منه شيء فقال له النبي إذا أعجلت أو أقطحت فعليك الوضوء وفي رواية إنما الماء من الماء the reason or the background story to this hadith is that Utban ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, one of the companions, had intercourse with his wife, but did not ejaculate. So he asked the Prophet wasallam about that, and the messenger told him the water, the ghusl, is only required if the seminal fluid exits. So that was the background to this hadith. One of the companions was asking about the intercourse, but without any exit of the fluid. So the messenger said to him, the ghusl is only from the exiting of the fluid. The water is only needed from the water if the seminal fluid exists. Exits. This particular narration though, we have an issue. And the issue that we have is that there is the hadith of Abu Huraira, we're going to get to the second point in a moment on it. The hadith of Abu Huraira, radiyallahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, idha jalasa, بَيْنَ شُعَبِيهَا ثُمَّ جَهَدَهَا فَقَدْ وَجَبَ الْغُسْلِ متفق عليه وزاد مسلم وَإِنْ لَمْ يُنْزِلْ 
in this hadith of Abu Hurairah, it mentions that if an individual positions himself within that position of intimacy with his wife, between the limbs, and the foreplay occurs or some intimacy occurs, then the ghusl is wajib already, it says. And in the version of Muslim, it even highlights even if he does not ejaculate. So now we have this issue, Islamically speaking. When is the ghusl obligatory from that intimacy between the spouses? Is it only if liquids are ejaculated? Or is it even without the ejaculation of liquids as long as that intimacy occurs, the intercourse occurs, even without the ejaculation of liquids is ghusl wajib? The first hadith says, no, only if the liquids exit. The second hadith says, the hadith of Abu Huraira, yes, even if liquids have not exited. So now what do we do with these two narrations that apparently seem to give opposite rulings? And there is even another hadith, إِذَا الْتَقَ الْخِتَانَانَ فَقَدْ وَجَبَ الْغُسْلِ That if the two circumcised areas meet, then the ghusl is obligatory. Meaning even without the exit of any liquids, if the two circumcised areas meet, and the meaning of that is if the, the tip of the male private areas enters into the female. If that occurs, then the two circumcised areas have met. Without even any exit of liquids, this narration now says, The ghusl is now obligatory upon you if that contact like that occurs, if that insertion even just to the edge of the male genitalia occurs, then ghusl is now obligatory. So now we need to work out what is the Islamic ruling, because the first hadith where it says it is only due if the seminal liquid exits is in sahih Muslim. And the second one is muttafaqun alayhi. So they are both in their own right, authentic narrations. One in Muslim, the other one muttafaqun alayhi. So now, how do we understand this? لا شك بأن العمل عند جمهور العلماء على حديث أبي هريرة the majority of the scholars, the Islamic ruling with them is based upon the hadith of Abu Huraira, which said that if the intercourse occurs, 
If the, the male genitalia inserts or penetrates into the female even without any ejaculation, then ghusl is wajib from that point. That is the opinion and the correct stance mentioned by the majority of the scholars. And very few scholars, very few took the opinion that it's only wajib if the liquid exits. Very few. So how did the majority of the scholars explain that first hadith then? Because if the majority are going to say it's wajib, as soon as that intimacy or intercourse occurs, it is now wajib. Even if no ejaculation occurs. But then how are they going to explain the first hadith in Sahih Muslim? That says no, it's only wajib if the liquid exits. They have three answers. They have three methods of explanation. The first of them is, أَنَّ حَدِيثَ أَبِي سَعِيدٍ مَحْمُولٌ عَلَى مَا كَانَ فِي أَوَّلِ الْأَمْرِ وحديث أبي هريرة على ما كان آخر الأمر فيكون حديث أبي هريرة ناسخا لحديث أبي سعيد ولهذا صرح أبي ابن أبي بن كعب رضي الله عنه كما روي عنه أن حديث أبي سعيد كان سابقا ومتقدما على حديث أبي هريرة one explanation they have given is that, and to understand this explanation, you need to understand a basic point, which is that all of the rulings of this religion, all of the fiqh of this religion, all of the rulings of this religion, were they given to the Prophet ﷺ all in one go? Or were they given to him over a period of 23 years? Over a period of 23 years not all of the hadith and all of the quran everything was not given to the messenger in one go by jibreel rather jibreel alayhi salam used to come to him consistently during the time he lived in mecca and during the time he lived in medina he would come to him with revelation after revelation after revelation so some of the, the majority of the scholars, they say the hadith in Sahih Muslim, the hadith of Abu Sa'id, that one was one of the early revelations. And the hadith of Abu Huraira was one of the later revelations. And so they say the hadith of Abu Huraira abrogates the hadith of Abu Sa'id. Basically what they are saying therefore is, originally the revelation that had come was that you only have to make ghusl if liquids exit. But then later on the new revelation came overriding that previous one, saying that actually now the ruling is, as long as the private areas they meet, the insertion occurs from the tip even, 
then now the the ghusl is obligatory. So it abrogated the previous ruling. So the previous ruling was a correct and valid ruling in the early stages of Islam. Then later on it was abrogated. And so the majority of the scholars they say, now we do not implement and practice the hadith of Abu Sa'id because it was abrogated by the hadith of Abu Huraira. That's the one we have to now practice and implement in order to make that type of explanation that one hadith is abrogating the other one. There's one very important thing you have to be able to prove and that is obviously if you're saying one hadith overrides the other one because that other one was one of the early ones and this one is a later one, you have to be able to prove that this one is indeed a later one to that one. If you can't prove that this hadith came after that one, then how can you say this one overrides it? What if this one came before it? You have to be able to prove that this hadith that you want to use to abrogate the other one came after it. And in this case, they do prove that. And they say there is even a statement from Ubay ibn Ka'b anhu, one of the companions, who said explicitly that the hadith of Abu Sa'id was one of the earlier ones. That was the original early uh, uh, narration. And so they say it is proven that this ruling was abrogated. And that can occur in Islam. That maybe at one time at the beginning stages of Islam, the ruling was a particular thing. And then later on, the ruling changed. And then that second ruling became the final settled ruling in Islam. It's like when the Prophet ﷺ said to the companions, "Kuntu qad nahaytukum an ziyaratil qubur." The Messenger, initially at the early stages of Islam, had prevented the companions from visiting the graveyards because they were all new to Islam, entering into Islam. And prior to that, one of the biggest entrances or entry points into shirk was the graveyards. So initially the messenger had told them not allowed to go to the graveyards outside of the burials, not allowed to go otherwise to visit the graveyards. But then he said to them, But then later on in the years, when the aqidah became established and the tawheed became established, amongst them and their hearts were now secure and sound upon that aqidah, the messenger then said to them, now you can go, go and visit the graveyards, because indeed they remind you of the afterlife, they remind you of the hereafter, they remind you of death, so visit them. So initially the ruling was, you cannot visit, 
Then in the end, when it became established, the Aqidah and Tawheed, you can visit them, and it reminds you of the afterlife. So that occurs Islamically, where there may have been a ruling, and then the ruling was changed towards the later years of the revelation coming down, and that ruling was then established as the ruling. So this is one of those cases, the majority of the scholars, they say, that originally in Islam, you only had to make ghusl after intimacy and intercourse if liquids had exited. But then afterwards, the ruling was changed that you have to make ghusl after that intercourse even if liquids have not exited. That is their first explanation. The second explanation they give, أَنَّ دَلَالَةَ حَدِيثِ أَبِي سَعِيدِ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ مَنْ لَمْ يُنْزِلْ لَا غُصْلَ عَلَيْهِ دَلَالَةَ مَفْهُومِ وَأَمَّ حَدِيثُ أَبِي هُرَيْرَ فَإِنَّ دَلَالَتَهُ عَلَىٰ وُجُوبِ الْغُصْلِ عَلَيْهِ وَإِنْ لَمْ يُنْزِلْ دَلَالَةَ مَنْطُوقِ فَدَلَالَةُ الْمَنْطُوقِ مُقَدَّمَةً بل إن دلالة مفهوم المخالفة لا يقول بها بعض العلماء كالحنفية مثلا لضعفها فلا تعارض بين مفهوم منطوق فحديث بهرير منطوق وحديث بسعيد مفهوم This is the second explanation as to why you have to take the hadith of Abu Huraira as the ruling that you have to make ghusl anyway and not the hadith of Abu Sa'id that it's only if the liquids exit the second explanation to prove that is something which is highlighted in usul al-fiqh, in the principles of fiqh, which aid and help a person to understand the evidences of the religion. They say the hadith of Abu Sa'id is something that you have to derive. You derive the understanding from it. Whereas the hadith of Abu Huraira is explicit in its wording. Meaning, the first hadith of Abu Sa'id says, the ghusl, the water, is only needed if the other water exists. This would therefore, uh, you would therefore be able to derive from that, that the water, the ghusl, is therefore not needed if the other water does not exist. Because the hadith says the ghusl is needed if the other water occurs, if the ejaculation occurs. You can derive from that and understand from that, therefore, the ghusl would not be needed if the other water did not exit. You can derive that understanding. That's a derived understanding because the hadith doesn't say that explicitly it doesn't say there is no ghusl if no liquid exits it doesn't say it like that you have to derive that and the derivation is correct no problem with it but it is a derived evidence whereas the hadith of Abu Huraira is explicit. It is not something you have to derive. 
Because in the hadith of Abu Hurairah it says, إِذَا جَلَسَ بَيْنَ شُعَبِهَا ثُمَّ جَهَدَهَا فَقَدْ وَجَبَ الْغُسَلِ If he sits in, in the position of intimacy uh, between the arms and the legs and the, the actions occur, then the ghusl is obligatory now. Explicit, the ghusl is obligatory now. Nothing you have to derive from that. Nothing you have to try and work out. It's as if the intimacy occurs, then the ghusl is obligatory upon you. The ruling Islamically is when you're trying to understand these narrations and these hadith, is that a hadith which is explicitly worded has priority over a hadith where you have to derive the meaning. A hadith that is explicit in its wording is prioritized over a hadith where you have to derive the meaning. And some of the scholars like the Hanafis, they don't even accept derived evidences. Otherwise known as mafhumul mukhalafa. Mafhumul mukhalafa. The, the, the opposite understanding. Like if I say to you, uh, nobody enter the mosque. Nobody enter the mosque. From my statement, you can derive what? That everybody should, everybody should do what? No one enter the mosque. So explicitly I'm saying nobody enter the mosque. You can derive from that that everybody should stay outside. But I didn't say everybody stay outside. They weren't my explicit words. My explicit words were nobody enter the mosque. You can derive from that that everybody should stay outside there, stay outside here. But derivation isn't always the strongest. Everybody should stay outside where? In this car park or on that side in that car park? Now you have to derive these understandings. So some scholars, they don't even accept derived understandings where you have to deduct and deduce the meanings. So the point here is the hadith of Abu Sa'id, you have to derive and extract that understanding. Whereas the hadith of Abu Huraira is explicit in its wording and that gets priority. That's the second explanation as to why the hadith of Abu Huraira is to be acted upon. The third explanation, وَهُوَ أَنَّهُمْ حَمَلُوا حَدِيثَ أَبِي سَعِيدٍ عَلَى حَالَةِ الْإِحْتِلَامِ مِنَ النَّائِمِ بِأَنَّهُ إِذَا احْتَلَمَ النَّائِمِ جَامَعَ بِأَنَّهُ جَامَعَ مَرَأَةً وَلَمْ يَخْرُجْ مِنْهُ شَيْءٍ فَلَا شَيْءَ عَلَيْهِ وَلَا يَجِبُ عَلَيْهِ الْإِغْتِسَالِ إِلَّا إِذَا خَرَجَ مِنْهُ شَيْءٍ أَمَّا حَدِيثَ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةَ فَمَحْمُولٌ عَلَى حَالَةِ الْجِمَاعِ فِي الْيَقَظَةِ فَالْجِمَاعِ فِي الْيَقَظَةِ يَجِبُ يَجِبُ بِهِ الْإِغْتِسَالُ سَوَاءً أَنْزَلَ أَوْ لَمْ يَنْزَلَ أَوْ يُنْزِلْ لَمْ يُنْزِلْ The third explanation is that they said maybe 
the hadith of Abu Sa'id telling you don't have to make ghusl unless liquids exit. Maybe that's to do with the issue and the topic of wet dreams, not actual intercourse in real life. In, in the wet dream, that if an individual had a dream of intercourse, but he did not ejaculate from that in the dream. It was a dream of that nature, but no fluid exited. So it was a wet dream, the nature of the dream, but no wetness occurred. The fluid did not exit. Then they say maybe that's what the first hadith is talking about in that circumstance. Where you have had intercourse in your dream. But no fluid exited. You awaken and no fluid exited. You remember the dream. But no fluid has exited. Then no ghusl is upon you. Because if fluid did exit. From the wet dream then, ghusl is upon you. So they said maybe that's the interpretation of the hadith. And that is one explanation. But the most common explanation and the stronger explanations are those first two. One regarding the abrogation. That is a strong explanation many of the scholars mentioned there. And the other as well from usul al-fiqh. You could mention this is an explicit uh, explicitly worded narration that you have to make ghusl as soon as that intimacy occurs and the intercourse occurs as soon as the penetration occurs intercourse is obligatory even if the liquid does not exit what did I say? you said intercourse is obligatory but you meant the ah, the ghusl is obligatory not the intercourse. The intercourse, if it occurs, then the ghusl is obligatory. This happens, in, this is one of the sciences of hadith. Sometimes the narrators in some hadith would do that, uh, swap two words by accident. It's in the sciences of hadith. You get chapters in the mustalahat where you get some narrations and a narrator has said two words the wrong way around. And so that's obviously very important in hadith. It could change the ruling altogether from one way to the other way. And so in the sciences of hadith, you see the scholars where they highlight those kinds of things. They say this narration appears to be maqloob. That it appears to have been twisted by accident. The narrator meant to say this, but he accidentally said it the other way around. And that occurs. So then after that, we move on to the next narration. An Ummi Salama, Radiallahu Anha, Anna Umma Sulaim, Wahiyam Ratu Abi Talha, Alat Ya Rasulallah, Inna Allah Hala Yastahi Minal Haq, Fahal Alal Mara, Min Uslin Idahtalamat. In this hadith now, Umm Salama, whose name was Hind, the daughter of Abi Umayyah, the wife of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Umm Salama, 
she or either Umm Sulaim said to the Prophet ﷺ that, O Messenger of Allah, indeed Allah is not shy from the truth. Meaning that you are not shy, there is no shyness in learning your religion and the rulings of your religion. Indeed Allah is not shy from the truth. So she mentioned that as an introduction to the question she was about to ask, which was the type of affair that you would be shy from. So she said, but Allah is not shy from the truth. And this is like what Aisha radiallahu anha said, نِعْمَ نِسَاءَ الْأَنصَارِ لَمْ يَكُنْ يَمْنَعْهُنَّ حَيَاءُهُنَّ مِنْ أَنْ يَسْأَلْنَ عَنْ أُمُورِ دِينِهِنَّ She said, how good are the women of the Ansar, that their shyness did not prevent them from asking about the affairs of their religion. So here she asks the Prophet ﷺ, if a woman... A woman has a wet dream, then does she have to make ghusl? A woman having a wet dream in exactly the same way as a man has a wet dream, and liquids can exit. So if a woman has a wet dream, then is there a ghusl to be made for that? The Prophet ﷺ said, Naam, yes. If she sees the liquid, that liquid exits. If any liquid exits from that wet dream, then yes, upon her also is to make the ghusl. The wet dream is in reference to a person seeing matters of intimacy in his dream, matters of intimacy that cause the liquid to exit from him or her. So the ruling here is the same for the men and the women in that regard. If a wet dream occurs and liquid exits from them as a consequence of it, then the ghusl is wajib. But if a wet dream occurs and no liquid exits, then no ghusl is wajib in that case. Here we learn some benefits. The first of them, Su'al Ahlil Ilm, asking the people of knowledge, returning back to the people of knowledge and asking them in regards to the affairs of your religion. فَإِنَّ أُمَّ سُلَيْمْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهَا سَأَلَتِ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ عن هذه المسألة العظيمة التي تنتفع بها نساء المسلمين فكانت سبب خير. So Umm Sulaim here asked the Prophet وسلم, about this particular issue that a woman may be shy in regards to, but she asked about it and acquired the ruling, learnt the ruling from the messenger regarding it. And that ruling now benefits all of the women of the Ummah. Secondly, 
أنه لا يجوز أن يمنع الحياء من السؤال عن أمور الدين لا في حق الرجال ولا في حق النساء that it is not permissible for someone's shyness to prevent them from asking about their religion. If you need to know something about your religion, about the ruling of, of something, then do not allow shyness to stop you from that. Knowing about the rulings of the religion is important to make sure that you are worshipping Allah in the correct way. So you do not allow shyness to stop you. As the scholars they mention, there are two types of people who do not gain knowledge, the mustakbir and the mustahi. The one who is arrogant, thinks himself too good to learn, to sit, to study, to listen. That arrogance prevents him from learning his religion, prevents him from the gatherings of knowledge. And secondly, the mustahi, the one who is shy. His shyness prevents him from coming to the classes maybe. His shyness prevents him from going and asking questions that he wants to find the answers out to. So those two types of people will end up not learning, either out of arrogance or out of shyness. And both of those must be avoided. The talib al-ilm is not arrogant and neither is he shy in regards to asking and learning the affairs of the religion. The third ruling, the clear ruling that a wet dream, if the liquid exits as a consequence of it, then the ghusl is wajib upon that. Then after that we move to the next narration. وَعَنْ أَنَسِ بْنِ مَالِكٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالَ قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فِي الْمَرْأَةِ تَرَى فِي مَنَامِهَا مَا يَرَى الرَّجُلْ قَالَ تَغْتَسِلْ مُتَّفَقٌ عَلَيْهِ Same as before, that Anas ibn Malik said that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said regarding a woman who sees in her dream what a man sees, meaning the wet dream, and the liquid exits, then upon her is to make the ghusl also. وَزَادَ مُسْلِمْ فَقَالَتْ أُمُّ سُلَيْمْ And then in the narration of Muslim, Umm Sulaim said, وَهَلْ يَكُونُ هَذَا That does this even happen? Can a woman have a wet dream? Does this even happen? قَالَ نَعَمْ The messenger said yes. فَمِنْ أَيْنَ يَكُونُ الشَّبَهَ he said yes, that the liquids exit from the woman too, because otherwise, where does the resemblance come from? Meaning when a child is born, the child will have a resemblance to his father and or to his mother. And in some narrations it mentions, or some of the explanations, that... The two liquids of the man and of the woman 
whichever one of them precedes the other after the intercourse occurs and that process begins, whichever one of the two liquids precedes the other, then the child is born upon the resemblance of either the father or the mother, depending on which of the liquids preceded in that process. Then the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يغتسل من أربع that the Prophet وسلم, used to make ghusl for four reasons. He used to make ghusl for four reasons. In this narration it says the first one is من الجنابة from the sexual impurity, intercourse etc. Secondly, يَوْمُ Jumu'ah For the day of Friday, for the Jumu'ah prayer. Thirdly, مِنَ hijama From the cupping. And fourthly, مِنْ غُسْلِ الْمَيِّتِ After washing the deceased person. We've touched upon that one already before. That if you wash the deceased person, is ghusl obligatory upon you? Conclusion was no. That it's mustahab, it can be done, but that the evidences seem to indicate it is not obligatory. But yes, you can do it, and that's good, no problem. But in terms of the ruling, not obligatory. But here the point is, the narration mentions these four possible causes for the ghusl to be made. From the janabah, from the sexual impurity, for the day of Friday, Jumu'ah, for the cupping, and for the washing of the deceased. Hmm. So here then, in the explanation of this, in regards to these four aspects, the first of them from the sexual impurity, that is clear. And we've just been discussing that now. And the evidence for that is in the Qur'an. If somebody says, what is the clear and explicit evidence that you have to make ghusl from the janabah? In the Qur'an, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, وَإِن كُنْتُمْ جُنُوبًا That if you are upon that janabah, then purify yourselves. So that is a clear evidence that the ghusl is required from the janabah. As for Jumu'ah, about making the ghusl for Jumu'ah. Hada aydan sahat bihil ahadith. Here, regarding Jumu'ah, there are authentic narrations about making the ghusl for Jumu'ah. The only issue is do those authentic narrations indicate that it is an obligation to do the ghusl for Jum'ah, or do they indicate that it is something at least mustahab and a sunnah? That is where the scholars have differed over. There are some scholars who take the opinion that it is obligatory to do the ghusl on the Friday, the full... The ghusl 
in the basic sense of a ghusl, what is it? You make the intention and then you wash your full body. That's it, as the minimum. As the minimum, a ghusl is that you wash your full body. You get water over your full body. That in the basic minimum sense is the ghusl. So now the scholars, they differed. Some of them said it is obligatory to do the ghusl for Jumu'ah. And some of them said it is only mustahab. And the details of that are going to come up later. We're going to look at the narrations about Jumu'ah in detail and whether it is obligatory or mustahab in a future lesson, inshallah. The third one in this hadith was doing a ghusl after cupping. And the cupping is when you extract blood from the body. Uh, in the olden days, it was done physically, manually, whereby the suction was created physically by the straw and the sucking. He would suck the one who was doing the cupping to someone would use a straw and that suction would be created by the sucking through the straw. Nowadays, of course, you have those cups and the the experts here will tell you exactly how it works. But that cupping it mentions was a cause for the ghusl to be done. However, and with regards to the ghusl, with regards to the ghusl, it is uh, the uh, cupping. With regards to the cupping, it is a prophetic medicine. It is considered from the prophetic forms of medicine. Min al-Nabawi. And the Prophet ﷺ had cupping done to himself. And he mentioned al-Shifa fi thalatha. Cure is in three things. The sharta to muhjim, wa sharba to asal, wa kayyat nar. From the cupping, from the drinking of honey, and from the cauterization. Wa ana anha ummati anil kay. And then he mentioned that I prohibit the cauterization. So the hadith highlights in its basic sense that you're supposed to do a ghusl after the cupping. And again, that will be differed over in terms of the rulings will come to shortly. And the fourth one was regarding when you wash the dead person. Again, that is uh, disputed over in terms of obligatory or only mustahab. The conclusion we came to was that when you wash a dead person, you only have to make ghusl as a sunnah. It's up to you, it's good, but it's not obligatory to do so. So the, this narration here does not indicate by itself that it is obligatory to do so either. It doesn't indicate that it is obligatory, but it indicates that it is a potential cause for the ghusl to be done. After that, we have the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu fi qissati thumamat ibn Uthal. عندما أسلم وأمره النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أن يغتسل. Now another type of ghusl. When somebody becomes a Muslim, 
enters into Islam, embraces Islam, is it obligatory for him to go and do the ghusl? Yes, everybody says yes. So regarding this then, it mentions in this hadith about Thumamah ibn Uthal. Thumamah ibn Uthal, when he became a Muslim, in this hadith it says that the messenger ordered him to go and do ghusl. And this particular narration, it is regarding this individual Thumama ibn Uthal, and his story is mentioned, but when he became Muslim, when he became Muslim, it indicates here that the Prophet told him to do ghusl. However, the scholars have differed over it. Is it obligatory for somebody who becomes Muslim to do ghusl? Or is it not? And there are different opinions on this. There are three opinions of the scholars regarding somebody who embraces Islam. Does he have to do ghusl or not? The first opinion is wujubu al-ightisal mutlaqan amalan bihadha al-hadith wa amthalih lima fihi anna al-rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqarra al-ightisal The first opinion is that it is obligatory for a new Muslim to do ghusl obligatory for somebody who embraces Islam, that he must go and do the ghusl. And they say, look at this hadith, Thumamat ibn Uthal, the messenger told him to go do ghusl. The second opinion, that there is no sunnah whatsoever for somebody who embraces Islam to do ghusl. There is no sunnah at all, they say, for somebody who embraces Islam to do ghusl. And that is because they say this particular narration, as weakness in it is not established, but the origin of the story is actually in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. The origin of the story is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, but... There are scholars who mention that the narration itself upon that wording is not established. And so they say there is no sunnah established and proven that the new Muslim has to do ghusl. The third opinion is that in kana hadha al-kafir alladhi aslama alayhi ma yujibu l-ightisal wa huwa al-janabah fa'innahu yaghtasil. وَإِن لَمْ يَكُنْ عَلَيْهِ مَا يُوجِبُ الْإِغْتِسَالِ فَلَا يَجِبُ عَلَيْهِ الْإِغْتِسَالِ وَإِنَّمَا يَسْتَحَبُ The third opinion is, they say, when a person becomes a Muslim, if he happened to be in a state that requires ghusl anyway, 
Then when he became Muslim, he has to go do it. For example, if that kafir was upon the state of Janabah, he had intercourse, he was upon the state of Janabah, and then later on, maybe that day something, he becomes a Muslim. And he's still upon that state of Janabah. And he's now entered into Islam. They say now because of that state he is upon, he needs to go and do ghusl now that he's become a Muslim. He needs to go do the ghusl now that he has become a Muslim. He is upon a state of Janabah. But if he wasn't upon a state of Janabah, if he was upon purity otherwise, and he enters into Islam, they say it is not obligatory upon him in that case. So the first opinion is, absolutely in every case, the new Muslim entering into Islam must make ghusl. The second opinion, absolutely in every case, he does not make ghusl, there's no sunnah. The third opinion, there is no such thing as absolutely every case. In the third opinion they say, it depends. If he becomes Muslim, whilst he is in a state of janabah, from before accepting Islam, maybe from that day, from that night, now that he has entered into Islam, he needs to make the ghusl obligatory. Due to that state, he was upon entering into Islam. But if he was not upon any such state, and he embraced Islam, then they say it is not obligatory upon him to do the ghusl. So you have those statements. A Sheikh Al-Fawzan says, his opinion is which one? All three are correct? His opinion is the third, that if there is some reason for it, Janaba, etc., then he makes the ghusl, otherwise not. The first one that you have to do it, in all circumstances. Third one. Third one. Sheikh Al-Fawzan, he says, Lakin, and this is the Sheikh's opinion. This is his opinion. Lakin asahu al-aqwal huwa al-qawl bi'adam wujub al-ghtisar. Li'annahu hatta wa in kana alihi janaba bil-kufr. فالإسلام يجب ما قبله. The narration says, الإسلام يجب ما قبله. He says his uh, what the strongest opinion is. He says the strongest opinion is the opinion that says no ghusl is required of a new Muslim entering into Islam, even if he was upon a state of janaba. So the Shaykh doesn't even take the third opinion saying, what if he was upon a state of Janaba? He says, even that. Even if the Kafir was upon a state of Janaba from that night or whatever, then that day he accepts Islam, no irtisal, no ghusl upon him. He says, because Al-Islamu yajubbu ma qablahu, the narration says, when you become Muslim, it wipes out everything that came before it. Wipes out all of the kufr and your actions and everything before it. Wipes it all out. So now his janaba, whatever his state before is, 
wiped out. He's on a clean slate. So the Sheikh says, according to that and the general statement there, that he believes the third is the strongest opinion. Uh, the second, second. So a Sheikh al-Fawzan, he says that no ghusl is required, according to his opinion, for a new Muslim who enters into Islam. And as for the narration of Thumama ibn Uthal, he is from the scholars who consider and mention that that narration is weak. Many scholars, they say that narration is weak about the part where the messenger said to him, go make ghusl. They say it's weak, so you can't use that as an evidence that a new Muslim has to be told to go make ghusl. However, he adds at the end, لَكِنَّهُ mubah. But it's allowed. So it doesn't mean that when somebody becomes Muslim, you're going to say to them, don't go do ghusl. Of course, they can go do the ghusl, it's good. It's from cleanliness and purity and it's goodness. It's mubah. So there's no problem uh, in, the, in the new Muslim who enters into Islam that he then goes and makes the ghusl and purifies himself. And especially if the kafir prior to that, uh, perhaps drinking alcohol and alcohol on his garments and other things like that, and not knowing the etiquettes of the bathroom before that, and perhaps there were impurities and other things, so if he generally goes and makes the ghusl and purifies himself, cleans himself, then that is a good thing and it is from the mubah and the correct and allowed actions to be done. That is where we'll stop for today then. Next time, inshaAllah ta'ala, we're going to start with the Jumu'ah prayer, the ghusl for Fridays. What is the ruling on making the ghusl for Fridays? Is it obligatory? Is it mustahab? Are there opinions of the scholars on that too? And when does it have to be done? Can it be done after Maghrib on Thursday? Because technically now you're into Friday night. Could it be done then? 
Could it be done uh, uh, before Fajr on Friday morning? Can it be done after Fajr? Does it have to be just before Jumu'ah? Those kinds of topics regarding the ghusl for Jumu'ah, that's what we'll discuss in the next session, insha'Allah ta'ala. And that's what we'll stop for today then. Any questions or anything? If water is not available or you cannot use water for purification, then the alternative usually is tayammum. If water cannot be found or it cannot be used. And that's important to remember. Many people think that if your boiler breaks down or your water supply in your house cuts off for some reason and there's no water coming through the taps, can you now go make tayammum to pray? Your water's been, maybe your whole street. The, the United Utilities people, they're doing some pipe work outside on your road. There's no water. They've told you, they've sent the letters to your house. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. on this day, there's going to be no water in your taps. The whole street. So that day then, can you make tayammum and pray? There's no water in your house. There's no water in your whole street. The scholars, they say, that is not a case of there is no water to be found. You can only make tayammum when no water can be found or cannot be used. Cannot be found, so your whole street is cut off. But all you have to do is go to the next street corner and at the grocery shop, you can pick up your bottle of water, come home and make wudu, true or not? Absolutely. So can water be found? It can be found. That's why the scholars, they say, it's very rare that in an urbanized environment, in a city, it is very rare you're ever going to be in a situation where water can't be found. Very rare that would occur. Even if your whole block, your street, the next street, the next street, maybe 10 streets, all of you, something happened with the water supply, the pipe, the whole 10 streets are out. Even then, Ten streets are out. Your Tesco's just round the corner. Go buy the water. Bottle of water, five liters. Bring home, make wudu. The water's available everywhere. So in an urbanized environment, it's very rare to claim that there's no water. But if water wasn't found genuinely, then of course, tayammum is allowed. And the other is, if water cannot be used, that could be Either because of a medical condition you're not able to use water. It's there, it's available, but you can't use it for some medical issue. Or the water can be found, it's there, but you cannot use it because you cannot access it. The scholars give an example in the books of fiqh. Maybe you're out camping and there's a huge lake next to where you're camping. But that lake happens to be the watering source for all of the lions and the bears and all of the wild animals in that forest where you happen to be camping. So in the morning for Fajr or or Dhuhr time or whatever, you want to go make wudu now, you see 20 lions all around the lake and some big bears from over there and other things. So now the water's there, but can it be used? 
He cannot. You go anywhere near there, you're not going to come back. You will be killed by those animals. It's not usable. You cannot access it. Uh, or they say, for example, the enemy. Imagine the water is over there somewhere. You're here in between you and the water is your enemy who will kill you. And you cannot bypass him. So the water is there. It's found, but unaccessible, inaccessible. So if there are reasons where water cannot be used, you can make tayammum. The same applies in the situation of the ghusl. If you were genuinely in the situation where no water could be found, or it cannot be accessed or used, then tayammum is allowed also for the ghusl as a substitute. Anybody else? A bottle of water like we said a few weeks ago or a few months ago when that lesson was. The messenger used to make ghusl with basically a bottle of water amount. Ghusl does not mean that you have to have water pouring over you everywhere. These days when we think about ghusl, everybody thinks about their bath and their shower and water and water and liters and liters. That is not the necessity and the obligation in terms of a ghusl. The obligation in terms of a ghusl is that water must access every part of your body. So even if you've got some water in your hand like that, and you rub it all over your arm, that arm done. You get a little bit more water and you rub it all over your chest and this air, done. Then rub it all across there, done. You rub water all around your body, every part of your body. You could do that with a bottle. All your body has been rubbed with water now. You've technically done ghusl. The point is to get water across every area of your body. The point isn't that you have to have water gushing down all over the place and liters and liters like the shower and the bath. So people misunderstand that. Of course, when people do their showers and their baths, that's what they do now. Nobody's going to do it like this. But as a minimum in terms of the ghusl, it can be done. If there was a, 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 a need and a necessity to do that. Anybody else? If the water genuinely isn't enough to do the full ghusl, then it is possible that a person, you'll either have scholars telling you, use the amount that you are able to cover from your body, and then do a tayammum on top to make up for the fact that you weren't able to cover the full body. And that is maybe a bit like when the scholars, they mention the example of somebody who has their tooth taken out. If you have your tooth taken out and the dentist says to you, don't put any water, anything in there for 24 hours or whatever. So now how are you going to do madmada? When you're making wudu, you can't put water in your mouth. For example, so then the scholars, they say, make your wudu as usual. Do everything as usual and miss out the madmada. But then at the end, when you finish washing the feet, do a tayammum on top. And that makes up for the fact that you missed the mouth in making the wudu. Hmm. It is not a condition. If you wake up and that liquid is evident, and that type of liquid is different to a urinal liquid and things, 
So if you see that liquid evidently has exited, clearly and blatantly it is there, then the ghusl is upon you. It is clear that has only exited from one root. Yes, yeah, uh, so they don't accept mafhum al-mukhalafa, where, you, where you, uh, you have a statement and then you derive the opposite of it. As for qiyas, it's completely different. Qiyas is where you have something and you want to derive something exactly or as close as the same to it. Qiyas is trying to, is when you... Qiyas in fiqh is that you have an Islamic ruling on something. You have an Islamic ruling established on something. Like for example, alcohol. Established Islamic ruling that alcohol is haram. Now cocaine, heroin. Are they mentioned in the Quran, in the hadith? Cocaine and heroin. Those words are not mentioned. But we can say they are haram. As a qiyas upon intoxicants. Alcohol is haram. One of the reasons why it's haram, the illah, is because it is an intoxicant and it takes away your mind, takes away your senses. Heroin, cocaine, drugs, all of these things, they are also forms of intoxication and effect on your mind, etc. So the cause of alcohol being haram is present within drugs the same cause is present therefore they say qiyas can be done and we can say these drugs are haram as well because they are the same as alcohol in the illah in the reasoning so that's when you're trying to match two things up whereas mafhum al-mukhalafa is where you're trying to derive something in opposition to the original statement Hmm. how do you it is the, the method in its default is the same. The method in its default is the same. There may be some scholars who mention a further wiping upon the body, but otherwise the methods are the same. Anybody else? Anas ibn Malik, did we say? That was Ubay ibn Ka'ab. Ubay ibn Ka'ab. Radi Allahu an. Last one is prayer time. Last one going. Oh, we haven't got to that. We, have, we haven't even spoken about whether it's obligatory or mustahab. We'll come to those, inshallah. That was just a hadith highlighting four possible causes for ghusl to be made. What are the rulings for each one? That we'll get to later on. Hmm. Alright. Uh. Uh, yeah, with those the description of the ghusl, we're going to come to it as well, about the water getting to the source of the hair. The water getting to the source of the hair. 
So that would indicate you get the water in, uh, into the beard, into the hair, that it gets to the roots of the hairs, the water. But we'll do that in the description of the ghusl, the description and the sunnah to start with the right and the left, and then those kinds of issues too. We'll have to stop there. We're getting delayed for the prayer. We'll continue with it next time, inshallah ta'ala.